the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the good old Grateful Dead cast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, give us a like and leave a rating. It helps spread the show to those who haven't turned on to it yet, and we appreciate your help. Well, we're now more than halfway through this celebration of the 50th anniversary of Working Man's Dead. And as we deep dive into each song on this classic Grateful Dead studio album, I find myself loving it even more than before, if that's possible. Be sure to treat yourself to the expertly remastered re-release of the album out now, which includes a show from February 21st, 1971 at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. This show was mixed by Jeffrey Norman from the original 16-track analog reel-to-reel tapes. They did it over at Bob Weir's TRI Studios in Marin County. There is a three-CD set and a 12-inch vinyl picture disc, so cruise over to dead.net and check them out. Want to learn more about each of these episodes? Want to listen to past episodes maybe you missed? Come on over to dead.net slash deadcast where we have all that and more. While you're there... Be sure to submit your story for the Deadcast. Everybody's story is just as unique as they are, as you are, so share your perspective. Click on the Learn More button, enter your info, click Start Recording, and your story and your voice could end up in a future episode of the Deadcast. In this episode, we dive the deepest we have yet into the structure of any of these songs with Cumberland Blues. It's a perfect storm of all the elements. Jerry continues to deftly explore that Bakersfield twang, The band skillfully lays out an undeniable rock-solid foundation, and Robert Hunter crafted lyrics for this song that add image and color. We'll see how the Grateful Dead masterfully combined traditional American music with chord progressions and key changes that only a band with their experience could envision. Time to go down the rabbit hole with Jesse Jarno. Working Man's Dead is sometimes remembered as the Grateful Dead's move into country rock. But the funny thing is, besides the occasional presence of Jerry Garcia's pedal steel guitar, there's not much music on the album that actually resembles country music, at least as it was written and played in the United States in 1970. That is, until you drop the needle on side two of Working Man's Dead and hear this. Much longer, Melinda. The sun is getting high. I can't help you with your trouble if you won't help with mine. Tales from the Golden Road host Gary Lambert. That's the Bakersfield in the Grateful Dead, right there. You know, it's it's very very redolent of Merle Haggard's Working Man's Blues or something like that, and that was some of the music they were most infatuated with in that period. Bobby had that rhythm guitar part. It's pure Bakersfield. And Jerry was just wearing his love for those guys from Bakersfield on his sleeve. Uh, Roy Nichols, Merle's great guitar player for decades, and and the late Don Rich, who was the equivalent in Buck Owens' band. So, so, yeah, that, that was a case of Hunter's lyrics and the song and the genre they chose to mine that genre they all came together they converged so beautifully and it just the story that the song tells is perfectly served by the musical setting bob weir has told me about how he and garcia used to go on long drives and they always had one of those old school buttons on the radio you know they had the old mechanical switching buttons on car radios and one was always tuned to a country station and Bobby used to watch the Porter Wagoner TV show, which aired locally in the Bay Area. So they always had an outlet for country music, and they always had a love for it. People have often said the Grateful Dead had to compromise after making these very weird and very expensive albums going deep in the hole to Warner Brothers. So they had to compromise and simplify. But it wasn't so much a compromise as a broadening of their artistic perspective. Bakersfield was Bakersfield, California in the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley, northeast of L.A. It was there, in the late 1950s, that a new strain of country music emerged. The Bakersfield Sound, pioneered by artists like Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. It stripped country music of its Nashville glitz 
and gave it more of a hard-hitting backbeat. Jerry Garcia would refer to the Dead's approach in the next few years as the band's Bakersfield era, but it didn't happen all at once. In terms of original songwriting, Cumberland Blues was the band's first step in that direction, but it wasn't at all a straightforward one, as we'll hear. In part, it's the only song on Working Man's Dead with a co-writing credit by one-time experimental composer Phil Lesh. But let's start with Merle Haggard. I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried. Merle Haggard was a huge influence on the Grateful Dead, no question. In June of 1969, at the same shows where the band rolled out the first songs for what would become Working Man's Dead, they also unveiled their cover of Merle Haggard's Mama Tried, a pretty radical move for a rock band in the summer of 1969. They played it frequently from then on, as did the Dead's country rock spinoff, The New Riders of the Purple Sage, and Mama Tried stayed in the Dead's repertoire all the way to 1995. I assume if there was a show somewhere tonight, there'd be a decent chance that Bob Weir would sing it. But it was another Merle Haggard song that may have had a bigger immediate impact on the dead. Check out this groove. It's a big job just getting by with nine kids and a wife. But I've been working, man, dang near all my life, and I'll keep on working. That was Merle Haggard's 1969 single, Working Man Blues, released a month before the Working Man's Dead songs began to appear at Dead Shows. In several studio mixing sheets from Pacific High in 1970, the title of the Dead's new album in progress is listed as The Working Man's Dead, with both a definite article and the outlaw apostrophe just like Merle's. Jerry Garcia and the New Riders were certainly familiar with Working Man Blues, debuting their own cover just a few weeks before the release of Working Man's Dead in the spring of 1970. Merle Haggard's part of the Bakersfield Dead legacy looms large, but maybe even larger is an artist the Dead didn't cover directly, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, and specifically, Buckaroos lead guitarist Don Rich. Don Rich wasn't merely a lead guitarist, but a conversational lead guitarist, playing his parts differently each time, dancing around the Buckaroos' not insignificant swing. It really tied the room together. Listen to the way Don Rich fills in the colors on Love's Gonna Live Here Again from the 1966 live album Carnegie Hall Concert. Thanks to Sean O'Donnell for this example. We'll hear more from Sean momentarily. Oh, the sun's gonna shine in my life once more. Love's gonna live here again. Things are gonna be the way they were before. Love's gonna live here again. Garcia had been a Don Rich fan for at least a few years before Working Man's Dead, with stories of Garcia, Bob Weir, David Nelson, and others going to see Buck Owens and the Buckaroos perform around the San Francisco Peninsula in 1964 and 1965. It would be perhaps a full year or more after the Working Man's Dead sessions before the Bakersfield Dead emerged as something like a musical identity for the group. You can hear the Bakersfield Dead sound really starting to come into its own on this February 21st, 1971 show at the Capitol Theater in Porchester, New York, released with a beautiful new Jeffrey Norman mix on this year's new Working Man's Dead 50th Anniversary reissue. At these shows, the band debuted a new batch of songs with a Bakersfield approach virtually baked in, leaving plenty of room for that sweet Don Rich-like conversational guitar. It would be another new mode of songwriting for the dead. Check out this primal version of Bertha from February 21st, 1971 at the Cap, with tasty licks after every lyric. And into a rage zone. Test me, test me, test me, test me, 
Earlier this year, just before the whole world shut down, my last bit of travel was to one of my favorite places in the entire universe, the annual Grateful Dead Scholars Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. At this year's meeting, my friend Sean O'Donnell, a musicologist and chair of the music department at the City College of New York, gave a mind-bending presentation about Cumberland Blues and called out that great Buck Owens 66 live album from Carnegie Hall that we just heard from. You can find Sean's whole paper over at dead.net slash deadcast. But here he is to break down Cumberland Blues and the origins of the Bakersfield Dead. To me, to be with the Stratocaster of all, you know, just changing to that guitar and getting that Fender treble cutting sound that Jerry can play in the low register without getting muddy is part of what suddenly, you know, it's channeling Don Rich, you know, and so this other influence of, of a player he's listened to and admires, and he was definitely listening to Brumley on pedal steel. So it's sort of like the, the equipment uh, helped him. I mean, I don't know which drove it, whether he wanted that sound like now I got to be, or the Strat fell into his hands. He's like, this is what you have to play on a Fender. Um, but it, it really seems to be driven by that. Consulting the handy Jerry Garcia instrument history by deadologist Michael Clem, available on the Grateful Dead Guide blog, it seems that Garcia first began playing a 1963 Rosewood Stratocaster in the fall of 1969. The earliest photographic documentation is from October 24th. Two weeks later, Cumberland Blues arrived in Grateful Dead set lists. Here's a little bit of the first known version, recorded at the original Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco on November 8th, 1969, released on Dick's Pick 16. You know, the first 30 seconds is right there in Bakersfield. It just a kind of minor pentatonic noodling while you have these kind of major chords and you're in this comfortable train-ish groove. And then uh, suddenly with that harmonic shift, it's outer space compared to uh, Bakersfield. It's like not something that would ever, ever happen. And, and we don't notice it because it still sounds like Bakersfield. Sonically, we're still there, but you'll never find harmonic passage like that in their work. It's as soon as you have to get down. I gotta get down. I gotta get down. Gotta get down to the And you get down and then the, the chord just drops a half step down from G to G flat or F sharp, however someone wants to imagine it. And so it's physically very easy and close and comfortable. But in terms of functional harmony, there's there's just no relation. To my mind, immediately what comes is, you know, oh, this is portraying the lyric. It's somehow serving the text. But then instead, it just jumps away to B flat. Again, it is not functional in G. Um, and it's up to B and down back again to B flat and on to A and chromatically down. And those are mostly just chromatic chords. Again, physically very easy, but in terms of tonal function, one of the most far out passages they've used in a song yet as part of the song structure. So in that way, it's, it's to, to my ear, more adventurous in this, at least one dimension. Sean points out that despite being filled with folk and country influences, Working Man's Dead is filled with bizarro chord changes. Another song he singles out is High Time. I don't know any song that is that weird, to be honest. In the world where you're sitting down, I'm gonna play a series of chords and sing a song to it in that world. I just don't know anything that is that far out. You're not in any key for any amount of time. Like a pair of chords might make sense in a normal song, you know, and then the next pair of chords might make sense, but not if this other thing already happened. It's like if you're wandering through familiar terrain, but you're not going anywhere particular, and then somehow you wind up at home anyway. If the craziness of the high time chord structure intrigues you, Seek out Walter Everett's essay, High Time and the Ambiguous Harmonic Function, first published in the 1999 book from Greenwood Press, Perspectives on the Grateful Dead. Some of the band's earliest songs, going back to the Emergency Crew demo from 1965, 
now heard on the So Many Roads box set, were filled with strange chord changes, trying to push at the boundaries of pop and rock from the very start. The weird changes persisted into 1969 on Oxomoxoa songs like Cosmic Charlie and Doing That Rag. The dense chord changes and unusual moves got dialed down a few notches as the dead got rootsier. But not entirely. They're still very present on Cumberland Blues. As Sean points out, the song has four distinct sections. First, there's the Bakersfield groove, followed by the strangely leaping transition. And then... There's that middle bobby section that, you know, that's when the train gets from one to the other. A lot of poor men make a five-dollar bill But keep him happy all the time Some of the fellas make nothing at all And you can hear him cry And that's kind of neither truly bluegrass and not still in Bakersfield. It seems to have like elements of both and it doesn't have the outer space harmonic progression. It's very home in harmonic content, but it's traveling towards a true bluegrass, which it's not until they make enough money to move away that you actually arrive. So the move away is landing in bluegrass. That's when you're truly at the bluegrass moment and you got the banjo and the, all the harmonic money is really strongly directional um, and that that part could just be any traditional tune at that point right. um, but the sort of section in the middle which kind of leans to another key it's kind of in c-ish for part of it and kind of trails off to e minor where it's it just kind of ends and then suddenly you're just in g and you've arrived at the station there's not that much of Cumberland Blues on the new collection of session recordings called The Angel Share. Only three and a half minutes of the band working through the song's first section, with a basic lineup of Bob Weir on acoustic guitar, Jerry Garcia on lead electric guitar, Phil Lesh on lead electric bass, and Bill Kreutzmann trying out various kinds of hand percussion. No drums, but all four musicians keep the song's train-like motion front and center. There's some conversations about tempo. Number nine. The reason there's so little Cumberland blues on the Angel Share could well have to do with what musicologist Sean O'Donnell just explained about the song's four-part structure. Like the other songs on Working Man's Dead, Cumberland Blues is built around a single live performance. But even so, more than any other song on the album, the final take was built nearly piece by piece in the studio, truly a marvel of the Pacific High sessions. Here's Rhino archivist Mike Johnson. That is the track that we had, that we had the least for, because it had to be built from pieces. So that's, that's the one that, um, yeah, and, you know, and it's only like f- less than four minutes. Where some of these other tracks, you know, they, they last 40 minutes. You know, you're in the studio and and it's not at all boring. I mean, if you like this stuff, it, it's just sometimes when it ends, you just go, I, I want more. Us too, man. Even so, Sean points us to a nice little slice that highlights that outer space transition. About a minute into that outtake, you hear it without any of the rest of the song. So it stands out even more so. So his stylistic playing there is just very Jerry, like he's cruising through this harmonic warpage, like nothing happened. So it's very comfortable for him. But to my mind, that doesn't seem like a thing he might have written. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I, Phil gets a writing credit on this one and it sounds more like, you know, maybe he threw that in there. The unusual song structure is supported with equally rich musical transitions and scene changes. In fact, the only element that seems to run through the entirety of the final basic take is Bill Kreutzmann's drum kit, not at all present on the Angel Share outtakes. On the Working Man's Dead version, the drums come up and down in the mix, becoming the piece that connects the different sonic landscapes. The change really becomes obvious at the end of the bridge section, sung by Bob Weir. Some of the fellas making nothing at all And you can hear him cry 
Can I go, buddy? Can I go down? Take your ship back with mine. Gotta get down to the Cumberland Mine. Gotta get down to the Cumberland Mine. That's where I mainly spend my time. Underneath those glorious stacked vocals, Bill Kreutzmann is now swinging quietly on his drum kit. And in comes several other instruments. For starters, there's that banjo part. Album co-producer Bob Matthews. You want to know who played it? Well, that was me. I first met Jerry when I was 13 because he was the only folk music teacher who taught banjo in 1961. And uh, I'm pulling your leg. It was Jerry who played the banjo, obviously. I did take banjo lessons from Jerry, and that's how I introduced Bobby to Jerry. Again, that's another story. And another story we'll be exploring very soon on an upcoming episode of the good old Grateful Dead cast. Stay tuned. Jerry Garcia, of course, had been a virtuoso banjoist before turning his full attention to electric guitar. But besides the last few seconds of the original Dark Star 7-inch in 1967, Cumberland Blues is the only other studio recording by the dead where Garcia plays the banjo. Coincidentally, those last few seconds of the Dark Star single is also the only time Robert Hunter himself appears on an official dead recording, reciting a few additional lines of poetry he wrote for the session. You can find them all at dead.net slash song slash dark hyphen star. Here's Gary Lambert. Then you hear there's actual banjo later in the song. As they come toward the very end of it, Jerry actually put a little banjo in there. And when they played that song live, and that was another, I recall, from the acoustic or semi-acoustic says Jerry would, would play telly on that one, on those early live versions of Cumberland. And he had a great thing that he did where he would revert to his banjo technique just before they come in with the final lot of poor man's got the Cumberland blues. Jerry would move his hand down close to the bridge and he'd actually do a little banjo picking with his right hand. You know, that, that little three-finger banjo thing. You'd almost think that he had switched to banjo when you weren't looking. You know, he really, uh, he had that facility to use some of his banjo technique on guitar. And it, of course, worked like a charm. The other new sound in the mix during the second half of the song is some speedy flat-picked acoustic guitar by Jerry Garcia's old partner in the Black Mountain Boys, David Nelson. By 1970, the electric guitarist and the new riders of the Purple Sage. I remember I played a little acoustic guitar back up on Cumberland. I've played it so many times with the David Nelson band and everything, so I get it mixed up with what I played on the album. So, you know. But I think I played this acoustic guitar uh, rhythm back up. Pacific High, yeah. I remember, yeah, that was right by the Silmona West, and uh, I vaguely remember what it looks like. It was some, you know, some of my very first recording sessions. I liked it. I mean, I liked the studio, but I didn't have a lot to compare it with. Nelson and his partner in the New Riders, John Marmaduke Dawson, had been appearing on stage with the Dead regularly since mid-1969. And when the Dead went on tour following Working Man's Dead, bringing the New Riders on the road with them, Nelson would join the band to add a second acoustic guitar on Cumberland Blues, New Speedway Boogie, and other songs, More Nights Than Not. That just about covers the music part of Cumberland Blues. What about the lyrics? Here's Gary Lambert. That's another just a marvel of a Hunter lyric, these little details, the, the little Ben clock, which you know, maybe some people will never even know what that means, but there was a brand of clock, you know, a little tiny alarm clock that was called a little Ben which, you know, as a play on Big Ben, the clock in London, you know. So that was the traveler's clock, the little Ben. So that, that, was, that was Hunter's little bit of detail that I loved. I admit that until Gary pointed it out, I always assumed the lyric was little bed clock, like the kind you might find ticking on a nightstand, which in the case of Cumberland Blues, it also might have been. But look up an image of a little Ben clock. They're still pretty styling. Make sure you specify little, though, or you get a much bigger Ben. In Box of Rain, Robert Hunter's book of collected lyrics, under the entry for Cumberland Blues, he noted that the best compliment I ever had on a lyric was from an old guy who worked at the Cumberland Mine. He said, I wonder what the guy who wrote this song would have thought if he'd ever known something like the Grateful Dead was going to do it. Hunter told the story a few different ways. In another version, the compliment didn't come from a miner, 
but from an audience member at a dead show who didn't know they were speaking to the songwriter. I like to think of a world in which both of these stories are compatible. So where's Cumberland? In the town of Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, down in the dark of the Cumberland mine, there's blood on the coal and the miners lie in the roads that never saw sun or sky. Roads that never saw sun or sky. That was the Ballad of Spring Hill, sometimes known as the Spring Hill Mining Disaster, by Peggy Seeger with Ewan McCall, recorded in 1960. It was one of several songs about the Spring Hill Mining Disaster of 1958, and widely circulated in the folk revival on both sides of the Atlantic. There's a pretty good chance that both Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter were familiar with it. But between the Bakersfield guitar and bluegrass resolution of Cumberland Blues, it doesn't really sound like a song that's attempting to evoke Nova Scotia. There are Cumberland mines all over North America. The one in southern Pennsylvania is still active, though its owners recently announced their intention to sell it, in case anybody's looking to buy a Cumberland mine of their own. Though it sounds like it might be kind of a fixer-upper. The unionized miners there recently sued the government for better working conditions. Even more famous, perhaps, is the Cumberland mine along the Cumberland River in Harlan County, Kentucky, not far from where musicians like Aunt Molly Jackson and Jim Garland began to write topical folk songs in the 1920s about horrific working conditions in local mines. Harlan County is where Which Side Are You On originated. But despite its rich history of mining songs, I can only find one that references the Cumberland Mine in Kentucky, and it's of a slightly more recent vintage. As in southern Pennsylvania, the Cumberland Mine in Kentucky is well-organized, and this is a tribute to 21st century whistleblowing miner Charles Scott Howard by Australian songwriter Raymond Crook. When the officials saw that video, they kicked up quite a row. I want somebody at that Cumberland mine right now. It wasn't long till Frazier heard about what had been done. It's that whistleblowing, troublemaking Howard, he's the one. When it comes to miner safety, he's always on the ball. If anybody can find any other folk songs about Cumberland Mines, let us know. But all that's being kind of literal. Though it might have real-life antecedents and contemporaries, like Fenario and Direwolf and the new speedway of the proverbial boogie, the Cumberland Mine and Cumberland Blues is largely a place of the imagination, and perfectly symbolic, a song for anybody who ever had to get down to work. And in 1970, the Grateful Dead certainly had to do that. As Jerry said, Nothing to lose but our lives. The stakes for the Grateful Dead in 1970 were extraordinarily high. Not only was the band extremely broke, but exactly as the Working Man's Dead sessions were getting going, they were also in the active process of getting extremely ripped off. But as they were, they were also laying the groundwork for transforming themselves into something new. A real-life Working Man's Dead. Working Man's Dead grew out of a pivotal moment in the Grateful Dead's working history. And just as Cumberland Blues resolved into a grand bluegrass finale, our Cumberland Blues episodes now resolves into a grand story with a voice as weird as the hills, Mr. Sam Cutler. Sam was near the heart of the disastrous festival at the Altamont Raceway Park, which we covered in the last episode about New Speedway Boogie. And it's a few days after Altamont that our story picks up. Immediately after Altamont, I was sleeping in Mickey's barn. And Jerry came over there and saw me like two days after and said, you can't stay here, man. Come on, you come over to my house, which is very sweet of him. Because, you know, there was all kinds of politics going on, you know what I mean, with the bikers in the club, you know, and the journalists and the cops. And, oh, God, it was a nightmare. Anyway, Jerry was very kind like that, you know. And uh, I can remember having a conversation with Jerry when uh, just immediately after Altamont, Jerry felt very guilty about Altamont. You know, it all, you know, turned to shit. And Jerry felt very bad about it and said to me, well, come and stay at my house, you know. So I stayed at his house and... Um, we had long talks about bands and how you organise bands, you know. And uh, Jerry just couldn't believe that the Rolling Stones had three people working for him. Not on tour, obviously. We hired in shitloads of people for when we were on tour. But, you know, the Grateful Dead had about 70 people working for them. In fact, they could never quite establish how many people worked for them, how many people were on the pleasure crew, 
who was doing what. It was always, you know, deliberately maybe uh, uh, confused and kind of um, mixed up. And Jerry was just speechless. It was just a completely other way for him of seeing how bands could be organised. So, you know, he wanted the, the Grateful Dead to reorganise themselves going forward. You know, they needed to. They wanted to survive. They were hugely in debt. And with Jerry, it was just a small house in Larkspur in California. It was a nice house, but it wasn't, you know, any, like three, three bedrooms upstairs kind of thing, you know, pretty straightforward. I would have thought built in the 40s, maybe, or the 50s. A garden out the back, and we used to sit in the back, you know, and uh, smoke joints and talk about the music business and uh, how the Grateful Dead could survive and stuff like that. There was Jerry and Mountain Girl, and Mountain Girl's little uh, daughter, right, Sunshine, and uh, Hunter and Christie, his girlfriend at the time. So I didn't see much of Hunter and Christie. They were... Uh, they were madly in love, so they never came out of the room, basically. I don't know what was going on in there, but the mind boggles. But anyway, they didn't come out much. But Hunter was very sweet to me. He lent me a car. He had a DeSoto, this giant American car. I'd never been in a car so big in my life. I remember he had the gear stick was on the steering column. Giant fucking car it was, man. And I used to drive this down the road. I felt like I was in a Sherman tank. I couldn't quite believe he just said, oh, yeah, here's the keys, man, take my car. Like, no one in England would do that. Not in those days, you know what I mean? That was quite far out. At that time, Jerry was learning pedal steel guitar. He had a room downstairs that was off the sitting room that he was in, and he had his pedal steel set up in there and a TV. And he used to play the pedal steel through headphones, so you couldn't hear what he was doing. You know, he'd have headphones on and the TV would be on, usually with cartoons or something on it. You know, he just kind of, I think it was just something for him to kind of look at. And he wasn't really looking at anything. He was just, you know, listening to the, the pedal steel. Because, I mean, the pedal steel is one of these ridiculously complex instruments because you've got both feet are working, right, on the pedals. You've got your knees working on pedals on underneath the pedal steel. And then you've got two sets of 10 strings, your left hand and your right hand, and, a, you know, steel in the left hand. I mean, unbelievably complex uh, instrument. So, yeah, he just sat there for, ooh, I don't know, at least 10, 12 hours a day just to master it, you know. And, uh, yeah, he used to stop, come out and have a joint. I'd talk to him, whatever. And uh, then he'd go back, you know what I mean? He'd stop for food. Mountain Girl had taken some food in there. And he'd stop to sleep. And that was about it. One day, Sam wanted to give some space to Garcia and Mountain Girl and met one of their Larkspur neighbors, another acquaintance of Sam's from the music business, Janis Joplin. Yeah, I went out for a walk. I'd been at Jerry's a day, two days maybe. And I walked down the road and I see this house and outside of it was the painted Porsche that belonged to Janice right outside the garage. So it was obviously like she was either visiting the house or lived there. So I went up and knocked on the door. And so that was nice. Yeah. So I used to visit with her and hang out. Bless her. She was a good soul, man. You know, Jerry loved Janice. We, everybody in, in the music scene in California loved Janice. She was a, a sweet, sweet person. She was generous, you know. She didn't have a clue when it came to men. Well, if you look at blues singers, you know, traditionally, lots of them have had very hard times with the, the loves of their lives, as it were. Maybe they have a kind of somewhat tragic view of all that. Who knows? She was constantly either madly in love or madly depressed because the latest one had decided he couldn't handle her or whatever. Looking on a map, not only were Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter neighbors with Janis Joplin, there was actually a secret trail between their houses. Not that there's any evidence they ever used it, but at least on a map, it sure looks like it's possible to walk out of the back garden of the Garcia house at 271 Madrone Avenue, cross Larkspur Creek, follow Piedmont Trail for a quarter mile or so, sneak through some more woods, and end up in Janice's backyard. Not that there was that much time to hang. After the holidays, Sam Cutler went on his first trip with the dead in mid-January 1970. He wasn't working for them just yet. The first one's free, as they say. Well, immediately after Altamont, basically, we went to Hawaii. That was the first Grateful Dead gig I'd been at. Sonny Heard was deputized to look after me. He was my minder. And, uh, yeah, 
I got completely high. I mean, so wrecked. And I had a briefcase full of money, and we left it in the middle of the dance floor to see what would happen. And uh, nothing happened. Everybody danced around it, and Herd and I sat on the side for a while watching it, and then we went back and got it. Yeah, it was a high old gig. I remember the stage was about six foot high. It was just higher than my head. And Bob Weir walked off stage over my head and kind of walked through the air and landed and just kept going to the dressing room with his guitar still around his neck, you know what I mean, and uh, didn't miss a beat. And it was above my head. He walked straight off off the stage, didn't like land with a cruncher, and it just kept walking. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah, it was a high old time for sure. So that introduced me to the arcane art of counting money on LSD. It's an interesting skill that one is forced to develop. So, Sam, any tips for counting money on LSD? Any tips? Well, actually, funnily enough, they're all different sizes. American bills are different sizes for blind people, you know? That's how blind people tell them what the money is, by the size of it. Having mastered this new life skill, Sam soon had a new job. In part, he was in the right place at the right time or maybe the right place at the wrong time. In the spring of 1970, sometime during the Working Man's Dead sessions, there was a sudden vacancy in Grateful Dead management. That vacancy was caused by the band's most recent manager, the Reverend Lenny Hart, who also happened to be the father of dead drummer Mickey Hart. After an incident when Mountain Girl confronted the Reverend over non-payment for Garcia's work on the Zaprisky Point soundtrack, recorded in L.A. en route to Hawaii, it was discovered that the Reverend was cooking the books, and he soon absconded with a large sum of the band's money. Prior to uh, Working Man's Dead, it was a struggle, man. You know, uh, when I joined the band, Lenny had just run off with a shitload of money. They were in debt anyway. He took $350,000 off the band. I mean, the Grateful Dead, bless them, they're my brothers. I love them, you know, of course. But they were not what you could call the shrewdest judge of character. I mean, I eventually found out, right, that um, Jonathan Reister told me, actually, who left the, the Great for Dead because of Lenny, that Lenny actually showed up at a meeting, right, with a Bible in his hand and introduced himself as the Reverend Lenny Hart and swore on the Bible that he wouldn't rip him off. It's easy to take advantage of artists. And that's why, you know, honest tour managers, honest managers, people that, you know, handle people honestly, a few and far between in the music business. Because, you know, some of the greatest stars that you could possibly imagine in the music business, on some levels, are, you know, lacking somewhat. They can be brilliant and bright. Everybody in the Grateful Dead had their moments, of course, and their great insights into the human condition, no question. But they also um, were lacking in some respects, you know. And, of course, you know, you can't be good at everything, can you? That's why you need people around you as a musician in the music business. You know, you need people around you that love you, you know, genuinely love you and uh, that are honest, now, you know, it's easy in this life to find people that love you. It's not so easy in this life to find people that love you and are honest, believe it or not. The band was very nice about it. The band were much more concerned with, okay, well, that's happened now. Uh, what's the solution? What, what do we do next? Jerry's solution was, well, we've had one manager and he robbed us, so we'll have three. So he had a triumvirate of managers, Dave Parker, who was an old mate of his from school days, who was kind of an accountant. So David looked after the money. John McIntyre looked after the bullshit. And I did the work. In a sense, the new management became like the Grateful Dead's three branches of government. Dave Parker had been a member of Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions and contributed lyrics to the early Dead original, The Only Time Is Now. He and his wife, Bonnie, would be credited on the back of Working Man's Dead as Guardians of the Vault. Not the band's tapes, but their actual finances. John McIntyre's job was as band manager, interfacing with the record company and hassling with the real world at large. That spring, Dave Parker found a house at the corner of 5th and Lincoln in San Rafael in Marin County. McIntyre negotiated with the owners, and on April 1, 1970, the management signed a lease. It remained the Grateful Dead's office for the next several decades. 
As tour manager, Sam Cudler organized the Dead's road life, which over the next few years would take up the vast majority of their actual lives. Eventually, his company, Out of Town Tours, would establish an office a few houses down. On Working Man's Dead, John McIntyre was credited as Big Nurse and Sam Cutler as Executive Nanny. By every account, McIntyre and Cutler were polar opposites in the Grateful Dead metaverse. McIntyre came from the old-school mindset of a serious psychedelic head. Not that Sam Cutler wasn't a head, but he represented a turn towards the more ambitious. There's plenty on the court politics of the early 1970s Grateful Dead in Dennis McNally's book Long Strange Trip and David Ganz's and Blair Jackson's oral history. This is all a dream we dreamed, if you're hungry for more of that kind of stuff. John McIntyre would call Sam Cutler an empire builder, maybe kind of intending it as a slur. But it was also accurate. During his four years with the dead, Sam Cutler was perhaps the primary force in transforming the Grateful Dead from a small beloved band into an enormous beloved band. Like many stories in the Grateful Dead world, it began at Mickey Hart's ranch. It was lovely in a kind of psychedelic, vaguely Wild West kind of way. People wandered about pretty stoned, you know, and then once in a while they'd have band meetings out there in the barn. It was, uh, you know, kids, dogs, horses, chaos, and never quite sure who I was, never, you know, I could never work out who the fuck, who, who was who. You know, various people would have their say and, you know, I mean, that was one of the things that Jerry and I talked about, you know, is you just can't run a band where, you know, everybody can have a say. That came to a head. I earned the eternal uh, hatred. Well, I don't know if hatred's too strong a word, but dislike of all the old ladies in the band because I told the band, look, listen, you've got to tell your old ladies they can't come to the meetings. You know what I mean? You know, I work for musicians, man not for musicians' wives, you know. So that caused a bit of a ruction. And finally, the women all decided they didn't want to be there, basically, under duress. And then one time we were having a meeting, shitloads of people there. I didn't, I mean, I knew most of the people, but there's quite a few people I didn't know in the Grateful Dead's old house in Lincoln, uh, in San Rafael. And I pointed to this guy, and I, who's this guy? Who, who are you? It was a hippie that had just walked in off the street and saw this group of people having a meeting and thought, well, this looks interesting. I'll come and join in. Nobody knew who he was. He'd just come in off the street. That was like, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever you call it. I was like, no, 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 no we can't have this. So then uh, the band decided there had to be a band leader because they all became members of the Musicians' Union, which they hadn't been members of before. So they had, somebody had to sign the contracts and he had to formally be the band leader. And Jerry immediately went, well, I'm not the band leader. He didn't want to do it, right? Nobody wanted to do it. So then the band went off and had a meeting to decide who was going to do it. And then they came back and they made up their minds Phil was going to do it. So it was like, okay, well, why is Phil going to do it? Okay, you know, fine, I don't care. You know, I don't give a fuck, really. But, you know, just out of curiosity, say, why is Phil going to do it? So I said, well, he's the most difficult person to persuade that it's a good idea to do a particular gig. So if you can persuade him to do the gig, we're cool. We don't give a fuck. As long as he agrees, everything's cool. The unique Grateful Dead way of organising things it's kind of organising by default. I used to say things to the Grateful Dead. I'm sure I used to piss them off, right? I used to say, anyone can attack Russia, they better have a good plan. What is the plan here? You go on stage, you know what I mean, and you're going to play a song. Well, you all fucking know that Sugar Magnolia is in the key of D or whatever, right? And you all play in the same key. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So you want to be in a band? What's the plan? You need a plan for whatever you do in a band. You need a plan. So how to plan without, you know, being Hitler or Mussolini or Trump, how to lead with people not feeling like they're being led is part of the conundrum of management and tour management. The tour manager has to be, you know, the last man standing. He has to be able to answer the question, oh, when do we leave tomorrow? Where are we? What's happening? How much money did we get? Can I have some money? A million and one different things a tour manager has to deal with. So planning is, it's just core to the whole thing. 
that was something that I tried to achieve with the band. It was like, okay, we've all got our own individual takes on stuff and we're all wildly different people, but this is a collaborative, cooperative endeavour. Let's all try and be on the same page and let's try and be efficient about it, given the parameters that we're all stone hippies and uh, we don't want to be too efficient. Otherwise, you know, if we want to be that efficient, we join the army. We, we're rock and rollers, you know, because we want to be inefficient. What I was trying to do is take the Grateful Dead, and which I achieved, I think, uh, without trying to be big-headed about it. I was trying to take the Grateful Dead, who were known in San Francisco and on the West Coast, vaguely, right, and were earning about $2,000 a night, to being a successful band in America. Right. That was the same thing Warner Brothers were trying to do, right? To do that, you need the right record, as well as, you know, the right shows and da-da-da, you know, right? And, and as well as visiting New York 20 times a year. And the Grateful Dead, bless them, came up with Working Man's Dead. I mean, nobody was more fucking grateful and more thrilled than Joe Smith. Finally, he's got a record that Warner Brothers can get behind that everyone can understand. You know what I mean? Everyone can go for Wow, it's a, it's a record with songs on it, with words that people can relate to. Hello. I mean, we did 180-odd gigs in the first year I worked with them in order to get out of debt. We toured relentlessly, man, because that was the only way for a start the band could make money, but also it was the way to become successful. It was in those days. For example... We filled the spectrum in Philadelphia of 17,000 people. How did that happen? That happened because three times I did tours of fucking colleges throughout Pennsylvania, right? The band on buses going from college to college and playing in field houses, you know? But, you know, playing for five and six hours, man, students just stoned off their faces and couldn't believe it. Revolutionary. And, we played uh, with Jimi Hendrix in Philly, you know, and uh, you build these things. We played in and around New York all the time. We played the State University of New York all over New York. And we played the Fillmore East and played all kinds of different gigs out on the East Coast and build it up, you know, and built it and built it and built it and built it. And, and, uh, and basically through word of mouth, people say, oh, you know, I was at this concert with the Grateful Dead the other day. And, Man, they played for six hours or they played for five hours, whatever, you know. Have you heard this new album? And, you know, it's not just one thing with a band. You've got to have this band that's cooking live and you've got to have a band that's got a hot album. You know, all of those things are coming together. Sam Cutler would pilot the band across the Atlantic for the Europe 72 tour and was the primary driver behind the 1973 summer jam at Watkins Glen with the band and the Allman Brothers, where an estimated 600,000 attended. For many years, it held the record for the biggest concert in history. For Sam Cutler, it was something of a post-Altamont redemption. We ended up doing huge fucking gigs that were amazing. And it ended up with three bands. We said, well, let's do it with three bands. And we did it with the Grateful Dead, the band and the Ulmer Brothers. And 610,000 people bought a ticket at Watkins Glen. Right. That wasn't by accident. That wasn't an accident. That wasn't planning by default. That was planned. And it took nine months to get that gig together properly and plan it properly. And that was a result of a conversation I had with Jerry where we wanted to do a big gig again and show people that it was possible and that you didn't have to have, you know, people being killed or, you know, violence or whatever. That it could be done right, the sound could be done right, everybody could be looked after, everyone could have an amazingly good time, which they did, I'm pleased to say. In Amir Barlev's documentary, Long Strange Trip, you may have heard Sam talk about how British people didn't go out to discover Britain. Thanks to Sam... The Grateful Dead themselves became a way for people to find America. People go, I'm going to go and find America. It's a, a uniquely American thing, and it's wonderful. I mean, I went to America myself because of On the Road and, and loving On the Road as a book. That desire to discover America and find out what America was, what it represented, 
was strong in me, you know, for sure. It was a, a dream of every English rock and roller to go to America and, and be there for, for that dynamism and that amazing sense of space. And I think the Grateful Dead, in Working Man's Dead, particularly invented or were inventing or reinventing their own view of what it constituted to be American. So I think the Working Man's Dead represented a, a huge, huge kind of quantum leap for the Grateful Dead in terms of their kind of cooperative and artistic endeavours. Amazing, amazing, the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful album. I can tell by that little Ben clock over there that it's time to go. So here's a last blast of Cumberland Blues. It was the first song from Working Man's Dead to make it to an official Grateful Dead live album, becoming the opening track on Side A of Europe 72, a tour that was very much a Sam Cutler joint. Here's the sound of the working man's dead descending on London, April 8th, up this episode of the good old grateful dead cast thanks very much for listening please like subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts it really helps thank you executive producers for the good old grateful dead cast mark pincus and doran tyson produced for rhino entertainment by rich mahan productions and jesse jarno special thanks to david lemieux all rights reserved